You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, I do want to welcome you all this morning. Uh, whether you're here for the dedication, you come regularly, it's great to see you. Yesterday, I had the joy of taking two young lads to go and see Frozen 2. No spoilers. Well, I mean, if you will leave it a whole 24 hours and you've not seen it. Now, I'm not going to spoil it, but we know it's Elsa the Snow Queen with Kristoff and Anna who go on this adventure to rescue the kingdom. And the reality is, if we're really honest, many films are based upon this kind of theme. Some of you might not like the young children's Frozen 2, but maybe you've seen the film Taken. (laughs) A daughter is taken and a father is willing to do whatever he can to try and get her back as soon as possible for fear she will be sold into sex trafficking. I watched the film this week because I was told by my wife I'm not allowed to quote it unless I've seen it. (laughs) I have a particular set of skills. I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. If you've not seen the film, that's another spoiler, but that one's been out a lot longer. I guess the the honest truth is that in many films, this theme comes through. I discovered on the internet this week that we have spent $900 billion rescuing Matt Damon. I don't know if you've seen these films. Saving Private Ryan, Titan E, Interstellar, The Martian, the list goes on and on. I guess it is a theme, isn't it, to help someone or something out of a dangerous, harmful or unpleasant situation. Well, I would like to suggest that there is really only one story and that all these films have taken from the Bible. I'd like to suggest this morning that the Bible teaches God is our Father and that he's created us because he wants to know us. He's intensely interested in a close relationship with you. However, the Bible would teach that as rebellious sons, we've done our own things. We've turned our back on him as a defiant teenager and gone our own way. God graciously decides to chase after us because he loves us. And in many respects, some of you would know the Bible and read it often, and some of you would be a totally new content. I would like to suggest the story throughout is God pursuing people because he loves them. In the Old Testament, we hear this guy Abraham, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, actually, I'm going to be your God, I'm going to be your father, and I'm going to make this covenant, I'm going to give you this land, this inheritance, because I love you. And then he makes another covenant with a guy called Moses in the Old Testament, and basically, we can think of them as rules, but really, it was, hey, this is how our relationship will work, because I love you. And then we hear of another character in the Old Testament, a guy called David. And and God promises him, look, you're going to be king, but actually in in your family is going to be a king that reigns forever. Not just this one king for one nation, but the king of kings. Because I want to provide security and protection. However, every film we know turns on the fact the plot goes wrong. And the Bible is very honest and teaches that the plot has gone horribly wrong. I've got a a map that I've put up here, which basically talks about the kingdom splitting. Dark blue is at the top, there's a lighter blue at the bottom. 
the people of God were considered 12 tribes. But unfortunately, after David, you then had Solomon. We all know about the wisdom of Solomon. But after Solomon, they fell out. And so you had two tribes that formed the southern kingdom and ten tribes that formed the northern kingdom. This split happened about a thousand years before Jesus Christ. And then in 722, the northern kingdom is attacked and defeated by Assyria. And what they decided to do is they said, look, we're going we're to attack you and we're going to take some of you and we're going to put some of us in. We're going to mix this country up. The southern kingdom is attacked by Babylon. And if you've heard anything about this guy, Daniel and the lion's den, you know that he was removed about 600 BC. And then there's a final defeat of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. And basically, he decides, look, I'm not going to mix you up. I'm just going to destroy the city. I'm going to drag all your folk away, and you can come and live where we are. And at this point, the Israelites need rescuing. The Israelites, it's all gone horribly wrong. I think if you turn on the news, we'd probably admit that our nation's in a bit of a mess. People throw figures around about the NHS, about Brexit, about terrorism, about the environment. I had two texts before the meeting this morning. One guy says, Peter, I can't make church today. Somebody's jumped in front of a train. I think it's tragic. Someone else says, I'm going to be late today because there was a fatal stabbing in West Ealing last night. I guess it's so easy, isn't it, to look at the problems out there and suddenly think, golly, what's the mess? What's the solution? I would like to pose the challenge before we look at the Bible. Do we accept our need to be rescued? The danger is with social media that we can hide behind this and and always put up the nice pictures of the nice meal or the event. Look, I'm at a dedication with the Sibbons. But what's really going on? On the inside. We discover in 539 BC, it's about 500 years before Christ, that these verses that I'm about to read take place. I don't very often do this. I'm getting myself in trouble. It's the first dedication I've ever preached based upon the child's name, but I'm doing it today. (laughs) If you get dedicated next time, don't expect this. (laughs) I don't know there are any Xaviers in the Bible anyway. Ezra 1, 1 to 4. Cyrus helps the exiles to return. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what king, sorry, Cyrus, king of Persia, says The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. 
In many respects, this is the rescue. I guess the reality is, in most rescues, we'd all like to be the hero. Whether it's Captain America or Superman, whether it's Elsa or Liam Neeson, Boris or Corbin, and just to be fair, Swinton and Sturgeon too. I guess we all want to be our own hero. Read the amount of self-help material there is today. But the Bible makes clear that the one hero is God. God speaks. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet. And in this time of exile, you had Haggai and Zechariah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were people given by God to speak words of encouragement and direction. In fact, some say, God, how is this possible? Isaiah prophesied. Years before this happened in Isaiah 45, this is what the Lord says to the anointed, to Cyrus, the king wasn't even around then, whose right hand I take hold of. Actually, God had spoken this, and it was to be trusted. I find this hugely challenging. In an age where words seem cheap or hollow, in an age where what we said 10 years ago, we might now be ashamed of. The word of God endures and is a solid basis for how we do life. God not only speaks in the story, God acts. If you uh, have ever seen the film of Moses and the great escape, you know that just before they hit the water, that actually while they're still in Egypt, God says, you're to plunder the Egyptians. They'd been slaves for 400 years. And you're to say to the Egyptians, hey, could you give us And and the Egyptians would be favorably disposed and give them loads of silver and gold. Well, I don't know if you picked that up, but that is what happened here as well. It was like the second exodus when they left the land. They'd been exiles for 70 years. It's almost like you're about to go. God says, remember the exodus? I'm going to do this again. It's amazing, isn't it? Just going around, hey, give us your gold and your silver. And these people say, yeah, willingly, take it. They're kindly disposed. You can read about it in Ezra 1 verse 6. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver, gold, with goods and livestock, with valuable gifts in addition to all the fruit. So suddenly you get God speaking and God acting. Now I want to ask us a question. Because I still believe God speaks. And I still believe God acts. How do we respond to this? Well, I think there are three responses in the story. I'm quickly going to look at them. The king, some would say the king, the, what the king did was too good to be true. Why on earth would you say to a, a bunch of people that live, he'd, he'd invaded and taken over the Babylonians, and so he was now the king. Why would you say to them, that I want you to go back to your land, and in fact, I want you to take treasures, and in fact, I personally will pay for you to build a temple to your God. Some would say, would that really happen? Apparently, they found a cylinder that was used elsewhere that described this. It's in the British Museum. We won't go into the politics of that. But there's also a copy of it at the United Nations. Why did he do it? Well, what they think is that he was a very superstitious man. And what he thought is, if you go back and you pray to your God, then maybe he will bless me. And I guess the tragedy of the king is that he didn't know God personally. It was like a second-hand faith. What he really thought is, hey, maybe 
And I don't know, maybe some of us here today think, I'm not sure I believe all this stuff, but maybe you could pray a prayer for me. There's almost this super... Oh, maybe I will go to the carols. I'm not putting you off. Please come. But it almost feels like, well, if somebody else believes it, maybe. The reality is that the second group of people we know in this story are those that chose to follow, chose to return. The Bible doesn't really give us a total number. Well, we try and add it up. A guesstimate is between 50 and 100,000 people return. If you remember the map, it was only those in the southern kingdom that chose to return. In fact, from this point on, they are called the Jews because it was mainly the tribe of Judah with some from Benjamin. So they decided to return, but many chose not to. You see, following was a costly exercise. They had to leave what they had known. Some of them had been there for 70 years. They had to travel a dangerous path. They had no assurances at the end. It was difficult and uncertain. It was not an attractive proposition. Yeah, there you go. That's my invitation to follow Jesus Christ. Oh, yeah, it's not an easy thing. Ah, it's quite a challenge in life. I guess the third group of people that we learn from from this story of Ezra were the stayers. They were the people that actually thought, look, although we, we don't like being here, and if any of you know the song from Boney M, I refer to it many times, Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion because they were in exile, they wept and remembered their homeland. The reality was they had not been living out of their suitcases for 70 years. It's not like they went to work every day and the suitcases were there. Jeremiah, one of the prophets I was telling you about, told them, you to pray for the blessing of the city. And many of them had done. And what happened, therefore, is they had become wealthy. And so it's thought that their comfort led to them to choose to say, I don't think I want to follow God. I'm going to stay where I am. And so I guess the challenge for some of us is, are we too comfortable? Are we too comfortable? And say, I'm not sure I really want to follow God. Some quick lessons that I'd love to bring out this story, because whenever you watch a film, whenever you catch a story, there are lessons that we can learn. The first one I'd like to say is this, I believe that God is sovereign. Now this is humbling when things go well, because God is sovereign. But actually, it's reassuring when things are tough, because God is sovereign. And sometimes in the confusion of life now, we think, what's the future? I do believe in a sovereign God. We know this is true in the New Testament as well. When Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, steps up and preaches after Jesus has been crucified and risen, he says to the crowd in Acts 2, Listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. They were convinced that God is sovereign and God is in control. What else could I get from this story? I believe that God is faithful. 
someone shared even a testimony earlier, sometimes when we, we question God's faithfulness, but actually the story would say God is a God who keeps his promises. You see, although if you've got a Bible and you can see mine, the book of Ezra comes there and I've read this bit, actually this was one of the last things that happened before the New Testament. There was 400 years, really, of silence between the work of Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the city and Malachi. Uh, sorry, and, and, and Matthew. Now, if you go to church at, at a carol service, often they read a scripture, and it's almost like suddenly there's these oh, prophecies being fulfilled. We read Matthew 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they would call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because actually, what we understand from the Bible is God keeps his promises. I'm trying not to be cynical about politicians. The danger is that many of us worry at a time like this, that they say something and what will really happen. We mustn't react to God like that. Oh, you've made grand statements and you don't keep them. The Bible would say God is faithful. What else would I say we get from the book of Ezra? God deserves our worship. You see, Ezra, the, the, the main theme of the whole book, if you were to read the whole book, is that he went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And there was only one reason to build a temple. It was for the worship of God. And so you, you can read all of the details about it. If you were to sit there and think, okay, and some people opposed it, and these are the things that he instigated that were back up. But there was really one method, one message to his life. I want to see worship for God established. In the New Testament, this theme is picked up again. When Peter writes to the church, and he's saying, hey, you guys, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Basically, he was saying, hey, look, if you get to know God, it's so that you can worship God. I sometimes think our challenge is we get to know God so that we could rub him like a magic lamp and he could bless us. Now, actually, if you read the book of Ezra, the whole thing of following God is also that he is worthy of our worship and our praise. The final lesson I just want to pull out of this story would be this. God has the ultimate victory. Now, you might say, Pete, how do you read that into the book of Ezra? You see, because when the Babylonians came and attacked the temple, what they did is they would carry off all the gold and the silver and put it in their temple. And that was a very powerful image. Because what you were saying is, what you gave to your God, we've given to ours. Which means our God is bigger and stronger than yours. Now what's absolutely fascinating is that when Cyrus sends them back, he sends them back with all the treasure. He almost says, look, all the treasure that we took out of your temple, I want to give it back to you. And I want you to take it back to your temple. And I want you to reestablish this temple. Many people have said that this is almost like a, an image of God coming back from the dead. Oh, but they'd been ransacked. They'd, you know, the temple, this is why they were weeping by the... They were thinking, oh, what happened? Oh, we thought this is where God lived on earth. This is what we thought was his house. And they've taken all the treasure. They've robbed God. They've given it to another God. Oh, we thought. And then suddenly, 70 years later, 
Hey, I want you to take your treasure. Just imagine coming back. Which again is the central message of the Bible. We read in Matthew 28, we often read this at Easter. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. I have to be really careful now on the whole Frozen thing because I don't want to go doing spoilers. But most films you go to, let's just put it that way, the hero seems to die and come back because there's almost we're understanding this big story. I often used to take my kids when they were younger to the cinema and on the way back, I'd always say, oh, do you think that's, that's part of the story? And they said, Dad, does it have to be in every film? I said, but it is. That's the truth. God has the ultimate victory. There is nobody. As Christians, we don't have to do a pilgrimage to a grave. There is nobody. The Romans never produced the body to denounce the new faith. The Pharisees were unable to produce it to stop people following Jesus. In fact, 10 of the 11 disciples were, cruised, were, were killed stating they believed in the risen Jesus Christ. So I think we've looked at the story, the rescue and the lessons. Let me just ask a couple of questions of you this morning. How is your story going? Does life feel like Sinking sand. Maybe you've made a fortune, but you're now worried about losing it. Maybe you've had huge success in 2019 at work, but there's more pressure now for your targets in 2020. Maybe you've had a relationship breakdown in 2019. Maybe you know debt creeping in. Maybe you've had a health scare. Well, I want to bring you Ezra this morning. Now, the, the, the sharp ones of you said, but Pete, he wasn't even mentioned in the passage. If you read the book, he doesn't come along till chapter 7. But I didn't think I'd read that much to you this morning. In fact, he doesn't turn up until 80 years after the book has started. But the clue is in his name. You see, the name Ezra means God helps. And I think that is the clue to this story. I know that Mark and Abby and those of you who know him would say they are looking for God's help in their life. I know that Mark and Abby, in being parents, are looking for God's help. And part of what we'll even do this morning is come and we'll say, actually, we want them to know God's help in being parents. I know that Mark and Abby would love for all of you to know God's help in your own life. I guess I just want to end with this question. Will you accept God's help? The story got to the point where they just thought, we, just need, we need a saviour. Will you accept a saviour or are you still trying to be your own hero? Because I believe that the story of Ezra said, there is a God who wants to help. If only you will reach out and accept. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are God and we call you Father. We thank you that you want to know us as your children. You love us. You care. You will do whatever. You want to come and find us. 
God, we are aware there can be such mess around us. And maybe in our more honest reflections, we can aware of our own need inside of us. I pray that you'd give us, all of us, the grace not to try and be our own heroes, our own saviours, not to be the one that rushes around and thinks, I can do this. I pray instead that we'll remember the word Ezra. There is a God who helps. Lord, whether we don't know you at all, and this is our first prayer, God help. Inside, I'm crumbling, I'm crying. Or whether we say we've known you for a long time, we've got weary, we've forgotten the passage that was read to us earlier about the impossible God. We carry a burden we shouldn't. Help us also to come back to you and say, God, would you please help? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.